Thank you, Howard. <clears throat> That's who we serve as the living God. And <clears throat> we're excited of all that God does. And I'd like to right now come before the Lord and pray before our speaker comes forward. Let's come to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you with great hope and expectation of the great work that you're doing and the great work you've done in the past and how what a future we have. We know the joys that we are waiting for us in heaven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, but we also know that the truth sets us free here in this earth. Lord, we're very concerned about our world. We're very concerned about this country that has been founded on the Christian value, <clears throat> values and principles that made it so great and made it the top in the world. But Lord, we're also fearful because we see, like many other times, not only in this country, but in Israel's <clears throat> background too, of seeing uh, things that are coming and trying to bring us away from you and take us away from those values that are so important and treasured and that hold the society together. We pray especially for these Christians, Lord, as they stand tall in their communities to continue to stand for the truth and not fear repercussions. And that also, too, that we can love even our enemies, as you call us to do. And today, Heavenly Father, too, we think of our, this morning, we thank you that Glenn is here with us. I pray for Reverend Rogers as he brings the word to us, and then also shares about the denomination that we have looked at and we're, would love to be able to be part of. But I pray, Father, that you give wisdom to this congregation, too, to see clearly what is to be and to discern your will. We pray also, too, Father God, for his work and his continued work with uh, his denomination, with Bible Presbyterian Church. We thank you for his insights and understandings. We pray for his wife as she's without him this weekend, but he has come to share with us the, the wonderful treasures that we can hear about in this denomination. We pray also, too, Lord, that it will help our congregation even do better in our ministry here and encourage us to continue to stay the course and follow the truth and to love you, Lord, with all our hearts, souls, and mind. We pray, Heavenly Father, too, for those in our group those who are struggling right now, we think of Lucille, we think of uh, Daryl, who's um, had some problems after his heart surgery, and for uh, <clears throat> Mike, who's still uh, struggling with his uh, blood bleed on his brain. We pray also, too, Father, for Lucille and for her struggles and for our sister Kay. 
We think of others, Lord, that are in our own world. We think of um, Samantha, Lord, that 17-year-old with the brain tumors. We pray for healing for her. I pray also, too, for Kyle, who wants to get back into the department and service full-time. I pray for the healing of his body and the strength for it to be rebuilt. I pray also, too, Father God, for others that we know of, Lord, that are struggling right now with health. We think of Dr. Bott from the May School District and for others, Lord. And now, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to hear from Pastor Rogers and to learn and to also hear a challenging message to us that we need to hear in this world, Jesus. And now bless his work amongst us and send your Holy Spirit as you have already in our worship. And it's through Jesus we pray this. Amen. I want to introduce the Reverend Rogers. I've gotten to know him personally pretty well. He's ridden down in the car with me uh, three days and he still has his faith. It's even said it's stronger. <laughs> but we had a great time visiting him, my wife and I, and just spending time together. Uh, he's got a rich history. Um, all the things that were in the bulletin that I sent out, uh, there's even more to it. <clears throat> College president and being in the service, you know, to wake up. And the reality of life is to be going to sleep, having a pad on the side of your bed with your bulletproof vest or your body armor sitting next to you so that when they start shelling, you can just fall down on the mat, put the body armor up, roll up in a comfortable little sponge and just pray that you're there the next morning. That's the kind of stuff that he was involved with as an Air Force chaplain. And he did that for over 20-some years. He's also been a college president. And he's also been the moderator, which is like the president or head of the Bible Presbyterian Church uh, several times. He's married and has several uh, children. Um, and we're so grateful that he decided to come with the Bible Presbyterians decided to send him because he has a rich history in the Bible Presbyterian Church way back in my own state of New Jersey. And, uh, and that's not too bad. And uh, what he's done and uh, what his family came out of, uh, the Bible Presbyterian left the PCA, I believe it was, uh, for uh, reasons that, you know, they felt were ungodly. And they've stood the anchor and held the truth. And we're excited to uh, hear from him today, both as he gives us the message from 1 Samuel and also, too, as he preaches, uh, shares to us what the denomination holds and stands for. So without any more to say, Glenn, would you come forward and share the message of God with us today from 1 Samuel? Bless you, brother. Thank you, Pastor. All right. Okay, we're on the air. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. You bet. Thank you for that more than gracious introduction. Um, if you were bored enough to read that whole bio that he put in the in the bulletin, thank you for taking the time to do it. But there's two takeaways from it. If you read through that thing, one is I'm obviously really old. And the other one is, I've had a hard time keeping a job. <laughs> but I, um, I was in the Air Force for 
plus years somewhere in there. Uh, 22 glorious, fun-filled years. It was fun, and uh, it's it's great to because chaplain service is frontline personal evangelism. You're it's you know a pastor is is the pointy end of the spear we say in the service. The pastor's work is training and teaching and working with the congregation and building them up. A chaplain is really an evangelist, and that's a that's a privilege to do that, and. Uh, did that and working with young people kind of kept me young um, sort of you also are reminded that you're not as young as they are because when it comes time to run the mile and a half <clears throat> I was always last and uh, grateful to still be breathing when I got to the end and speaking of breathing I did some time in Iraq and um, I have a bottle of water down here. If I start to cough and start drinking that, don't worry about it. I was in Iraq, and they had us camp next to the infamous burn pits. So it, um, one of the reasons I have not been able to preach for some time is because of lung damage. So uh, don't be alarmed if I cough. I'll just take time and drink a lot of water. And, and I know you have all day and all the time in the world until I get done this message. In fact, I wore this... Fourth of July tie because I figure I'll probably still be preaching. Okay, tough crowd. The young the kids would ask me, you know, are you really that old? How old are you? And I would say, well, I'm older than Israel, and that would get their attention. But of course, then I'd mention that modern Israel was founded in 1948, and. Uh, but if you really want to know how old I am, one of my best assignments was they assigned me to Smyrna, Izmir, Turkey. Izmir, Turkey. Izmir, Turkey is actually the original Smyrna in the book of Revelation. It's, uh, that's, that's Smyrna. Uh, the Turks pronounce it differently. It comes out Izmirna, but it's Smyrna. And uh, in the book of Revelation, if you look at chapter 2, you will see that Jesus sends one of his letters to the angel of the church of Smyrna. And uh, that means to the, the messenger. The angelos is the messenger of Smyrna. I know this because your pastor says you studied the book of Revelation and you went through this. And so the, the angelos, the, the messenger, uh, the pastor. Well, for two years, I was the pastor of Smyrna. I was we were the only church there we were the chapel uh, for the NATO forces that were there and so I was the Angelos to Smornu I was it so the next time you read in Revelation and you see you can say I met the guy <laughs> okay anyway would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1st Samuel and chapter 17 because I'm excited for the opportunity to come. Uh, it has been a real blessing uh, getting to know your pastor and, and Sandy, and I just wish my wife could have been here. It would have been a real refreshing for her. Uh, she would have loved being here, and we have looked forward to this, the Presbytery. Uh, we've looked at all the things on YouTube and, and the various resources we could find, and we're very excited about where this congregation is and where you're going and the fact that you're determined to be faithful to the word of God. This is not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing in this day. It's a day of chaos. It's a day of confusion. And it's exciting to those of us who have gone through very similar things 
at various times to see a congregation that says we must be faithful to God's word. And so it's an encouragement to be with your pastor. And uh, uh, he burned up a tank of gas yesterday, driving me around, showing me Wichita. And so I know that was a personal expense to him, but it was really a wonderful time. First Samuel chapter 17. It's a very long passage, and I'm going to summarize it, so I don't know that we need to read all of this. Uh, part of it is already in your bulletin, if you want to read through it. In fact, up to verse um, 27 is there. So let's start at verse 27. And, uh, uh, well, no, let's, let's start at verse, um, verse 26. Verse 26, God's word says, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, that's David's eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left these few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now, now done? Is there not a cause? Now, I'm told that some time ago you, you studied the life of David, and uh, that's great. Just to refresh our memories, if you remember that the first king of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. He was made king because Israel, the people of Israel wanted to be like everybody else. Nothing new under the sun. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And God's prophet, Samuel, said, if you get a king, you know what it's going to be like. And they said, we don't care. We want a king. Okay. It wasn't time, God's time yet to have a king, but he said, you can have a king. And they picked out Saul because he looked good. And uh, he was anointed, but Saul immediately began to get into problems. And he disobeyed God eventually in a very serious way. And worse, he lied about it. God's prophet went up to him and said, did you do what you were told to do? And Saul said, oh, yeah, we did great. You know, he said, well, what are these sheep over here bleeding? What's going on? And he said, oh, well, we kept those to sacrifice to the Lord. It was a lie. He wasn't going to do that. And God says to Samuel, I am done with this guy, Saul. He is not, he's no longer the king, in my opinion. He's, he's gone. So you are going to go down and anoint a new king. And Samuel said, if I anoint a new king, Saul will kill him and probably kill me. He said, well, you just go down to Bethlehem and I will show you the one that you're to anoint. You just tell them you're there to sacrifice, which he was. But when you go there, I'll point out the one that you're to anoint as king. So he goes and he goes to Bethlehem. People say, what are you doing here? You know, when things are corrupt at the top of a nation, there's suspicion all around. And everybody's worried about what everybody else is doing. And here was Samuel showing up in this little town of Bethlehem. And uh, the people are, well, what's he doing here? What are you up to? Are you here from the king? What, what's going on? And Samuel says, I'm, I'm here to sacrifice. 
So I'm just going to go over here and sacrifice. You folks go about your business. Oh, by the way, there's a guy here named Jesse. Yeah, I'd like Jesse and his family to come to the sacrifice and help me out. Okay, so Jesse, who lived in Bethlehem, it's his hometown, in a kind of a county named Ephratah, Bethlehem of Ephratah, said, you, Jesse, you come on and, and bring, your, bring your sons. Jesse brings seven of his eight sons. And Samuel says, uh, oh, let me look over these sons. And the first one steps up, big, strong, good-looking guy, looks very kingly. And Samuel says, got to be this guy. Is this the guy, Lord? And the Lord said, nope, not this guy. And he goes through all seven of these sons that Jesse has brought. And he says to Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse said, well, yeah, no, there is one more, but he's keeping the sheep. He's the youngest, you know, we don't think much of him. You get the idea. He's just, he's out there watching the sheep. Didn't even bother to invite him. Here's, here's this is like the Secretary of State showing up and you don't invite one of your kids to the, to meet him, just leave him out there with the sheep. He had servants, but so he doesn't think much of David, I think. And finally he said, well, can you bring him up here? Sure. And he brings up David and David walks by Samuel and the Lord says, this is him. Now an interesting thing happens. Samuel anoints David, but the Bible doesn't say that this is done in a way that Jesse or any of his brothers see it. In fact, if you look at it carefully, later it's pretty clear that they don't realize David has been anointed king in the chapter we're about to look at. This is a something that happens between God's servant, Samuel, God's chosen king, David, and God himself. And I think it's a good picture of the importance, the really important things are the things that happen between you and God. Not what happens in front of the world. It starts with what's important is what's between you and the Lord. Salvation is like that. You know, no one else can have assurance of salvation except the person who has it. It's the most intimate relationship in the universe. The only one who can have assurance of your salvation is you. That you know Christ as your Savior. That you have trusted him. That your sins have been forgiven. You love your wife. You love your husband. You love your children. You wish you could have assurance for them. But only the individual. We look at the fruits of life, but we can't know. It is reserved to between Christ and his child. One-on-one. -on -one. It's the most important thing in the universe, and it's reserved between him. And, and this is what the whole work of, of our lives as Christians, as the church, it comes down to one-on-one. -on -one. You and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it unimportant? Not at all. Because without David being anointed, he never would have been king. He would not have been... And the whole work of Christ rests upon your knowing him as Savior. It starts there. So Samuel anoints him and goes on his merry way. About this time, the Bible says that as God put this special empowering spirit upon David, a spirit which enabled him to serve as king and lead his people, God withdraws it from Saul. 
We're not talking about the indwelling the Holy Spirit here, I don't think, in, which is part of salvation. We're talking about a special empowering which God gave. And God does give special empowerment for us in special tasks. I believe that's true of, of the officers of the church. I believe it's true of anyone who God gives a commission to go out and serve. He's going to give you the wherewithal to do the job that he has given you. He doesn't send you out unequipped. But he withdraws it from Saul, and as Saul has this withdrawn, he goes into depression. He's miserable, and he's, and he's sullen, and he's dangerous. And one of Saul's advisors, one of the guys standing there says, uh, you know, I heard about this guy. Imagine this, just out of the blue. I heard about this guy in Bethlehem. In fact, I saw him, and he's really good at playing the harp. And that would be good for you. And, and he, he'll play and you'll feel better. Music therapy, by the way, was very, we know now, was commonly used in, in ancient times. They used it in, uh, in Greece. They used it in many places. You know, we're back to using it in psychiatric stuff. My wife was a director of a nursing home. And we found that in working with patients with dementia, music therapy is working. It's one way to break through the fog of dementia and people will hear music. And so they said, you get this guy and bring it. Now he's a great guy. He's all around great guy and he's, he's a real warrior. He's brave, and, but he's a good harp player. Bring him up here. And Saul says, okay, and he play, David comes and he plays in front of Saul. You know this story. And uh, as, he, as he plays, Saul feels better. Well, about this time, a bunch of people show up on the scene that you've heard about many times called the Philistines. And they start to come back and attack Israel. These Philistines, we now know, are probably Greek. Probably come from the island of Crete and that area. We know this because we have excavated in places like Gath and Gaza. We know where these cities are. We know that the Egyptians called them the Sea People because they invaded from the sea and they tried to establish colonies along that area. In fact, the name Palestine comes from the word Philistine. So they were known as the people along the coast. They were the Sea People. And the DNA of the skeletons that we have excavated, archaeologists have, shows that they are of an Aegean, a Greek heritage. And a lot of the things that we talk about when, when it describes them, it's very interesting. That is exactly the culture that seems to be represented here. They wore very unique headdresses, but we know a lot about the Philistines today. Well, they would periodically try and push in and take more territory away from the is Israel. And here they are coming at it again. And when they do, they, um, they use a, uh, well, they, they invade, Israel sends out the word, for a levy. And the way armies were raised in those days, the word would be sent out, every family has to send so many men to fight. And uh, Jesse gets the word and sends three of his sons. Three of his eight sons are sent off to war. The first three, the oldest three. And they're sent off to war. Saul sends David home. Now, think about this. David knows he's anointed king. He probably looked at the invitation to come play in front of Saul as his way to learn about things at court. 
to get a perspective on the nation, to see how things worked. He's the only one that knows he's anointed king, besides Samuel, and he ain't talking. So David is saying, and the Philistines are invading. Where's a king supposed to be? At the head of the army. And Saul says, David, go home. Even though David has been given the honorary title of armor bearer. Now, it's an honorary title. Lots of kings have titles like this. You know, in, in Britain, one of the highest orders is the Knight of the Bath. <laughs> what? The Knight of the Garter. Well, why do they call him that? Because he's the guy that was trusted enough to help the king get dressed or to help the king take a bath. And the guy that you have close to you when you're absolutely naked and have no defense at all is a guy you better be trusting. So it's a great honorable title. And David had this title. But when the war comes, he sends him home. And what does Jesse do with David when he gets home? He sent off his top three sons and he sends David back to watch sheep. David's sitting out by the sheep saying, I thought I was anointed king. What am I doing out with the sheep again? How come this didn't work out? I thought the Lord, this was God's plan. I was going to... How about that? When the Lord gives you a job to do, he lays out the way it's going to be done. And we think it's going to go one way. Often the Lord has a completely different way route it's going to happen. And that's exactly what's happening here. One day... Jesse uh, sends for David. He says, David, your three brothers are away at the war. I don't know how they're doing. <laughs> of course he doesn't know how they're doing. They're soldiers and they're away at war. One of my tricks as a chaplain was when we'd be out in the field doing things, I'd walk around with, I don't know what you call them now. We used to call them penny postcards. You know the postcards that have a stamp already on them? And I'd carry a whole bunch of these in my uniform in my, in my uh, field gear. And I'd hop into a uh, position. They're not called foxholes, they're called positions. And I'd hop into a position and I'd say, uh, how you doing, soldier? Doing great. And yeah, I work with the Army too. I work with the Air Force, I work with the Army. That's how it is today. And I'd work and I'd say, uh, so, when was the last time you wrote mom? Uh, have it. I'd pull out a penny postcard and a pen, and I'd hand it to him. I'd say, here, write a note. And the kid would say, dear mom, I'm doing fine. Signed, you know, love, Bob. Thank you. And I'd take it back. I'd get his pen back, too. And uh, <clears throat> then I'd collect all these. When I get back to headquarters, I'd dump them in the mail. And moms and dads would be so thrilled. They'd get a note from their son they hadn't seen in all this time. No, so nice of him to think to write home. <laughs> Jesse said, I wanted to find out how my sons are doing. So David, you got nothing else to do except watch those sheep. I want you to take this, uh, go down and see how they're doing it, and take this parched corn. This is a care package, right? Everybody at college wants a care package. Guys in the field, they want a care package. Take a care package. Take this food down to them, because you know how chow is in the military, right? It hasn't changed. Some of you guys were served a while ago. The food has not improved. In fact, <clears throat> now you eat out of brown plastic bags. They call it MREs, meal ready to eat. 
We used to call that three lies in one. <laughs> so he said, take this parched corn, and then you got these 12 cheeses. I got these 12 cheeses. You take that to the colonel. Don't take that to your son, to, to your brothers. You take that to the colonel. Because the colonel, I, maybe the colonel was going to distribute them. Maybe they he was going to keep them for the officers. That's often done. Maybe he's going to keep them for... But anyway, the colonel will think better about your brothers, probably, if he gets a nice gift from home. So you take this stuff down there. And David said, okay. Now David takes off and goes to, to see the army. He knows where it is. And he's driving this, he's got a, a, a driver with him. They're in a, uh, some kind of cart. They get there and lo and behold, here's the two armies drawn up for battle. Here's the Philistines on this side and the Israel on this side. And, uh, but in, the, in between these two armies, the Philistines have a man. It's called in your Bible, a champion. Now the word is actually in, in the original, the Hebrew means a man in the middle. And it's very similar to the Greek term for this guy. This is the, a Greek custom. Remember where the Philistines are from? It's a Greek custom. And that is, when you fight between two armies, that's really expensive. I mean, a lot of guys get killed. You, you, you destroy a lot of equipment. It's expensive. Kings don't like money being spent like that. They'd rather get it over with on the cheap. So in the Greek world, each side would pick a champion, a guy that was their biggest, strongest soldier, and they'd put him out there to single combat, the guy from the other side, and whoever won, they say, okay, that's the, that's the winner of the war. Well, sure beat a coin toss, I guess, but that's how they did it. And you see this in, in lots of Greek literature. If you read the Iliad and all of this, Achilles was a Greek champion. It's the same term, the man in the middle. But the Philistines have got a guy who's a real wonder. His name is Goliath. <clears throat> and Goliath is a descendant of what are called in the Bible the Anakim. Back up. Do you remember when the 12 spies were sent out before they went into the land back in Moses' time? And they come back and they say, what? They say, we can't go up there. There are giants up there. And they're talking about these Anakim. Anakim simply means the descendants of Anak. And Anak, and they were apparently, they, they're just big people, like Watusi or whatever. And different people have different characteristics. You know, we, we think of the Scandinavians as being big, strong guys. We think of, of other people as being smaller people. Well, these were big. But they, and the dimensions that are given of Goliath are huge, but not unreasonable. This is a real story. And if you're interested in studying leadership, I would recommend reading this whole account very, very carefully because you're seeing how people really do react and you're seeing leadership at work in this. Goliath, if we get the dimensions right, and it's a little tricky because of course it's based upon a cubit and a cubit is from here to here and that varies from people to people. But if we've got this right, he's about nine and a half feet tall big, but not mythical. This is, this is possible. He's, I mean, this is a size of a, what a big, huge guy would be, nine and a half feet tall. One of the keys to confirming that and how strong this guy was 
is they, you may notice that the, the writer of scripture takes special note of the spear that he's carrying. The spear, he says, the shaft on the spear is a weaver's beam. It's like a weaver's beam. Well, that would have been a unit of measure they would have understood at that time. A weaver's beam was the, the pole that when they pulled like on this and they had to put all that pressure on, it had to be strong enough to resist. And a weaver's beam, we know, was about 12 feet long, roughly, and it was about two inches around. But on the head of this, he's got a spearhead that's about 15 pounds. And if you think about wielding a spear, on, it's 15 pounds on the end of a stick, you've got to be a pretty solid guy to handle something like that. This is a real, but yet reasonably real, individual. And he steps out and he says, I, he's defying Israel. He said, send out a guy to fight me. Win or take all. And it's obvious what he's really saying and how Israel interprets this. He's defying the God of Israel. This isn't a struggle between two people. This is a struggle between the God of Israel and the gods of the Philistines. It's coming down to brass tacks. So David rides up, he sees all this, he hears this guy yell, and he says to his brothers, or he says to the men around him, what? I don't see anybody going out to get this guy. What'll be done for the guy? And he asks a question, what'll be done for the guy? What is the king going to do for the guy that goes out and defeats this guy? Oh, well, all kinds of things. He'll, he'll be, his family will be declared free forever, free from taxes, having no responsibilities, you know, a free family. That was a big deal. And he's going to get all this money and he'll get to marry the king's daughter. This is a big deal. Why is David asking this question? David is the only one standing there knowing who the real king is. It's David. David is the king. But he has no power in front of these men because they don't know he's the king. Nobody knows he's the king. But David knows it's his responsibility to fight this battle because he is the king. And so he starts asking questions. Questions are powerful. Questions are more powerful sometimes than statements. Remember Socrates? Socrates would walk around... <clears throat> He, he created what was called the examined life, concept of the examined life. And the idea was he would ask questions, and by asking questions, he would show people their inconsistencies. And he would, he would go after wisdom by asking these Socratic method questions. Well, questions are very effective. I had a friend uh, when I was in the service. His name was Jack Monaghan. He was a senior master sergeant. And... Uh, Sergeant Monaghan, <clears throat> he was with the 102nd, 172nd Mountain Infantry. And he told me a story that uh, he was a drill instructor at uh, Fort Dix, I think, during the Carter administration. And they came out with a decree that said that drill instructors couldn't call recruits names anymore. Have you ever seen the movie Glory? Okay, you know the drill instructor? Remember, go back and look at the drill instructor. That's a drill. Drill instructors have never changed. In 2,000 years, drill instructors have not changed. They will explain life to a young recruit in indelible terms. 
And they will make things exquisitely clear, things that that recruit never dreamed of. And they do it bluntly. And so this, <laughs> Monaghan said, <clears throat> this decree came down and all the, um, all the uh, drill sergeants went back to the chow hall and sat around and they were so glum. They said, well, what are we gonna do? This is how we know how to train guys. What are we gonna do? We can't call them names anymore. And they sat around so glumly, oh, what are we gonna And he said, then suddenly one of them had a great insight. He said, you know, we can't call them names anymore, but we can ask them questions. Are you a, this is a tough crowd. Asking a question is sometimes more effective. And David says, is asking these guys, well, David's brother, his big brother, who thinks, remember, he's the guy big enough and strong enough that Samuel thought that he would be the king. But he's not going out to fight this guy. And he says to David, what are you doing down here? You just came down to watch this thing. Now, that's wrong on two parts because David wanted to be there and he wanted to be part of this thing. And he was sent there by his father and he's got his care package and, the, and all this, but he says, you just came down to see this battle because you know you don't have any responsibility here. And David turns to him and he says in verse 29, he says, what have I now done? There's another question. What's your problem? What have I done? Is there not a cause? Now, if you have a modern translation, you'll see that it's translated more like it's just a question. And it's true that the, the original language of this is, is an interesting configuration. It really, literally kind of means it is just a question, isn't it? But what he's actually doing, the old translations like the Geneva Bible and the King James and the American Standard and those things come up with this translation isn't, isn't there a reason for this? Isn't there a cause? Is there not a cause? Let me translate it further. Your pastor and I come from the same uh, foreign country. It's called New Jersey. And we both speak New Jersey. If we hang around each other too long, we'll start talking like we used to when we were growing up there. And uh, we were taught not to do that when we came around real people, but this is how we used to. Well, he act, we actually speak two dialects. He speaks Northeast Jersey, and I speak Southwest Jersey. And to translate this into Jersey, what, Paul, what, what David would really be saying is uh, something like, uh, just asking for a friend, you know? What, what's your problem? And David is, is kind of, by asking this question, he's saying, well, isn't there a reason why you're here? Isn't there a reason why you're wearing all this high-speed armor and carrying that sword and wearing the shoulder? Isn't there a reason why we're here? Armies aren't assembled for parades. Armies are assembled to fight wars and defend nations. The parade is a means of training, but the purpose of an army is to battle and win a war to protect its nation, to protect its people. 
That's why we say to, to men of the nation, leave your family, come over here and help us fight this war. Your job is really to be at home taking care of your family, but in this case of emergency, that's why we're putting together an army. I have to look at this. Um, this is my short-term memory now. And uh, so I have to refer to this once in a while. But, and so I don't get too far apart. The purpose that David is saying here is you have to look at the bottom line. I had a, a colonel once that walked around and he would walk up to people and say, what's your job? And the kid would say, I'm a cook. And the colonel would say, no, you're not. When you answer my question, I want you to say, I support the mission of this wing by supplying food that is necessary for the health of the men who are on, you know, accomplishing the mission. What's your job? Well, I'm a clerk. No, it's not. I support the mission of this wing by keeping the paperwork straight so that people can concentrate on their wartime mission. And every question had to do with what the purpose was. Nobody had a, a job that was unimportant. Every job is important. As I get older, and I am getting older, I now have the luxury of looking back on my life. It's a dangerous thing to do. Some of you are doing it. But as I look back on mine, I realized the only things I really regret were the things that were not done for the single purpose that I had been given from the moment I was saved. Everything else was off track. I was saved for a reason. The Lord Jesus Christ died that I might have everlasting life and then left me on this earth to serve him, to be of use to him. And I regret everything that was not for the purpose of glorifying him in my own life, in my family, in whatever job I was given to do. Everything else was extraneous. It was excess baggage. And what is it we're told to do? Lay aside every weight that encumbers us. Just lay that aside. You know, I have in, in my house, I have these beautiful dishes. My mother-in-law, my first mother-in-law, my first wife died of cancer. And uh, I used to tease my, my first wife. I said, I married you to get that mother-in-law. She was a wonderful Christian lady. She was, uh, she was uh, Scottish Canadian. And being very proper Scottish Canadian, she had these dishes, these bone china dishes. Now these are the kind you hold up to the light and you can see right through them. You know, that real beautiful, just paper thin bone china, gorgeous stuff. And it's all hand painted and all. She used those dishes as a true servant of Christ. She would entertain missionaries. She would entertain Christian workers. She would use it for all kinds of things in God's service and did it in a very proper way. Well, the Lord called her home and my first wife, being the only daughter, inherited these dishes. 
And she used them for the same thing. People would come to the house and, you know, she would use them to entertain and advance. Well, time has gone on. She's home with the Lord. And we have these dishes. And our lives have changed. And we don't use them now. And I thought, well, when my first wife was taken home, I called up her two brothers and I said, you know, these are really yours now. We don't want them. What would we use them for? So I asked people, would you like these, these beautiful dishes? No. Nobody wants these things anymore. And a problem that our generation is finding is that all this stuff that we collected, a whole house full of stuff, we're getting to the point where we know somebody's going to have to clean out that house when we're gone. And nobody wants this stuff. It's just stuff. It's junk. It was wonderful at one time, but it's just there now. It's in the way. Why? Because it doesn't serve the singular purpose that we have. And this is the problem in our lives of constantly looking at what do we have? Is this really serving Christ? Is this what we need to do now? And just like in our personal lives, so it is with, a, with the gathering of Christians, which is the church. The church serves as a place where Christians can work together to advance the gospel of Christ, to proclaim the gospel of, church, of Christ. We've been told to do that. We've been told to work together and proclaim his word. The trouble is, we get all cluttered up because churches have more than just the functionality of them. They also hold precious memories. <laughs> now, I live in the Philadelphia area. I could walk you down the streets of Philadelphia. I wouldn't because it's too dangerous. But if I walked you down the streets of Philadelphia, I could show you beautiful church buildings that were built for the glory of God. Beautiful. They're empty. They're vacant. Some of them are being turned into community centers. There were once vibrant congregations in those churches. They poured their, they built these things to God's glory, but then the neighborhoods changed and those people left. I think they forgot their mission. God had put them there to evangelize and they left. Daubigny was a great historian uh, of the 19th century, 1800s. He wrote a history of the gospel, uh, of the Reformation in England. And he, <clears throat> he wrote there that the mistake, the Celtic people had received the gospel, my people, had received the gospel. We received it from the Roman soldiers. We received it the hard way. But we, the Celtic nation, uh, which includes what now is now the Irish and the Welsh and the Scots and all this, we had the gospel. But when the Anglo-Saxons began to move in, Daubigny say we, the mistake that the Celts made was instead of seeing these people as a mission field come to their door as souls to be saved, they saw them as enemies to be fought. And in making that mistake, they lost everything. 
they were conquered. Remember when the church used to pray for an open door to missions in China? We have an open door. The Chinese are here. Who's reaching them? We used to pray for an open door to missions in the Middle East because it was so dangerous to send missionaries there. God said, I'll do better. I'll bring them here. You can evangelize them here with no fear. Are we doing that? I was, um, many years ago, I know the time is going, I can't really see the clock. I'm out of time, aren't I? Okay. Well, that's all right. You know, if you put up a calendar, it would be better. <laughs> okay. But let me just read you something. When I was a brand new pastor in Lakeland, Florida, 1970-something, 72, I think. I read this passage. And so as I was preparing for this message, I came across it. I just want to finish with this. I read this passage, and I sat down and wrote something. And I think it has stood the test of time. Let me read it to you. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause which is more important than our own personal feelings? A cause which is truly worth forgiving and forbearing one another? A cause worth putting up with one another and bearing the wrong done us by another if there's no way to correct it without damaging the cause? A cause which is worth sticking to no matter what grief it may bring us? A cause in the light of which all our own feelings seem petty? And all the insults and thoughtless words and actions of friend and foe alike and all the frustrations experienced are not enough to drive us from the ranks of those who labor for this cause? Is there not a cause which is more important than our own personal possessions? A cause so great and so compelling that we gladly dedicate all that we own to it, holding our possessions in trust ready to use or yield them as and where needed, realizing that God has ordained that his ministry shall be conducted with the wealth he gives to his people? Is there not a cause which is more important than our own comforts? A cause for which to exert ourselves, a cause to lose some sleep over, a cause in which to do without? Is there not a cause which is more compelling than our own personal interests? A cause to which we dedicate our time for study and for enjoyment and for recreation? Is there not a cause for which we would gladly give our own lives while we are yet alive and for which we would happily give our last drop of blood? In short, a cause for which no sacrifice, no matter how great or small, would we withhold? Is there not the cause of the Lamb? Who, after giving up the riches and luxuries of heaven, wept over the men who hated him and gave his own life for them? Is there not a cause? Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank thee that thou hast called us for a purpose to serve thee, 
Thou hast bound us together to serve thee. Thou hast made this the church, the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. May we be obedient and faithful to the cause of the Lamb. May we proclaim his word together faithfully and lay aside every weight which doth so easily beset us and lay aside the spotted garment and, and all of the associations which, which confuse the world as they look at us, that they may see the pure gospel shining from this place of service to thee. Bless us, we pray, that the Lord Jesus Christ alone would be glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Glenn. There is a cause, and we have to stand for it every day. Sometimes you even have to stand for it at your workplace and stand in, in, in the process. We're going to take a, probably a 10 to 15 minute break so we can set up tables and get ready. And people, if you have to go to the restroom or anything or just take a little walk, please do that. And then Glenn's going to come and share a little bit about what the denomination's about. And there's going to be a question and answer time. And then I'd like if you're in your bulletins, you see... There's a, <clears throat> a sheet in there that's yellow. And I'd like you to fill that out. You may not want to do it today. You might want to think about what's said and then send it later on. But on this Tuesday, we're having a board meeting, and I wanted to have those for us so that we can see clearly through your eyes um, about where we're going here. And I thank Glenn for sharing with us about this great message that we need to notice there is a cause. And the reason why we have a lot of the problems we have in our society today is because the church dropped the ball. We have not stood up for the cause. And because of the value systems in our culture today are terrible. And the reason why? Because we in the church missed it. Back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they should have been fighting these things. And we didn't. And now we have a culture that's on the run, full-blown. And we are the ones who are the stopper. You know, we talk about the Reformed denomination, Reformed church, that we believe in reforming our lives according to the Word of God. That we're reforming the church according to the Word of God. We are the agents in society that will be reforming the society according to the Word. Calvin was wonderful about this and how the, the church is to be the input in society. And we've allowed the society to push us out. And now we've got to fight, fight. And we've got a good fight. But you know what? We have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's our commander. And we're going to win this. And we're not going to give up till our last drop of blood is spilled. So I want you to encourage you to stay after. Help us set up the tables and chairs. And we're going to listen and give Glenn a little break. He talked about his breathing problems from the, uh, being in Afghanistan and, <clears throat> and being next to the pit. Um, and he's just getting back into preaching. And I appreciate that he was willing to come today and do this for us. And then we'll listen and, and have any questions we can ask. Then fill out your sheets and then please uh, enjoy the dinner that we have that the, the folks have worked on uh, for us to share together in good fellowship. Now receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Thanks for standing. I forgot all of that. <laughs>
this out of the way and this out of the way.